Well, good morning. The student's sense of humor is often quite perverted. Some time ago, I walked into the classroom and some wag had written on the chalkboard these words. There once was a student of Esser whose knowledge grew lesser and lesser. It at last grew so small he knew nothing at all, so they made him a seminary professor. I've discovered that students have ways of seeing to it that you do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Eugene Peterson wrote an intriguing book entitled Run with the Horses, in which he placed a burr in my mental saddle with these words. The puzzle is why so many people live so badly, not so wickedly, but so inanely. Not so cruelly, but so stupidly. There's little to admire and less to imitate in the people who are prominent in our culture. We have celebrities, but not saints. Famous entertainers amuse a nation of bored insomniacs. Infamous criminals act out the aggressions of timid conformists. Petulant and spoiled athletes play games vicariously for lazy and apathetic spectators. People aimless and bored amuse themselves with trivia and trash. Neither the adventure of goodness nor the pursuit of righteousness gets headlines. That statement forces a question in our mind. What kind of a man, what kind of a woman does it take to make an impact on our culture? In our last session together, we discovered that we need leaders in our society. We need leaders in our families and we need leaders in our churches. But what are the characteristics of the men and women that God has used with leverage in their generation. On the surface, leaders appear to be quite different. Some are short, some are tall. Some are extroverts, some are introverts. Some are individuals who are hard-charging, others rather laid back. Some are directive and some are indirective in their leadership style. For example, can you think of two people more different historically than Adolf Hitler and Mahatma Gandhi? Or General George Patton and Mother Teresa? And yet each of these was able to marshal the energy and human resources of vast numbers of people. Leaders are vastly different externally, but beneath the surface they share some common characteristics that have contributed to their desire and ability to lead. And these characteristics have been identified through some rather extensive research. And I'd like to share with you the 10 commonalities of transformative leaders. You got a paper? or a pencil, I would encourage you to jot them down. 
because I want to give you an assignment at the end of the hour. The first characteristic, and perhaps the strongest characteristic of leaders, is that they have a strong sense of purpose. They know exactly what they want to achieve, and why, and how, and when. And they focus all of their energy toward getting those objectives. I want to recommend a study for you. In your Bible reading, in your devotional life, perhaps your personal study program, or in preparation for your Bible classes here at the college, I would encourage you to study the leaders of the Old and the New Testament to discover who were the individuals and what were they char the characteristics of those individuals. Because I happen to believe the process is more important than the product. So in each of these, I'm going to give you at least one passage of Scripture to get you started. If you have a Bible or a New Testament, turn to Philippians chapter 3. I want you to see it in the life of the Apostle Paul. In chapter 3 and verse 13 of Philippians, Paul says, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Please note, not these 40 things I dabble in. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind, that is not enamored of the successes of the past, not frustrated by the failures of the past. Straining toward what is ahead. It's an athletic term of a runner, a guy or a gal whose chest is extended to the full in order to cross the tape, straining toward what is ahead. I here and now press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. May I call to your attention when he made the statement? He made it at the end of his life. When most people are looking for a rocking chair or looking for retirement, he's looking for a challenge. He understands retirement is not a biblical concept. You may retire from a job. You may not have an option. But you never retire from life, from ministry as a Christian. So at the end of his life, he wants you to know He's got a clear-cut objective. Jesus Christ, in Mark chapter 10 and 45, is described as one who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, that's why Paul, at the end of his life, could say, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. This is why Jesus Christ could say on the cross, it is finished. And the great challenge to you as young people today is to ask, when you come to the end of this life, will you be able to say, I finished what God has placed me on the planet to accomplish? 
you ask a leader, what is your aim? You never get some vague, abstract, muddled, confused response. They give you an exact, precise goal, usually stated in emphatic terms. In fact, often they are able to summarize it only in a sentence or a few words, which we often refer to as a mission statement. You know what I would recommend to you? Before you are graduated from the Master's College, make sure you don't come out of this institution without a personal mission statement. It's going to take you some time to develop it. You're going to have to massage it, and you may even have to change it. But at least you are moving in the direction of being able to say, this is what God has called me to do. Now, I happen to know that many of you are multi-gifted individuals, and that only complicates the problem for you. You see, if you can do many things, then you have to spend considerable time finding what is the one thing I must do. And it's almost like an inverted pyramid. You begin at your stage of life thinking, what should I do? And some of you are gifted musically and athletically and scholastically and in interpersonal relations and in a variety of ways. You've got to continue to narrow that process till finally you come to the one thing that you can say, I must do this. And may I say to you out of a lot of experience, all kinds of individuals will bend you out of shape to keep you from coming to that focus. I spend all of my life keeping people from trying to make me a president, trying to make me a dean in the particular institution in which I've served. My only reason for existence is teaching. And if you take me out of the classroom, I cease to exist in terms of the God-given purpose for what God has called me. And you have to ask the same thing in terms of your life no matter what God is calling you to do. There's a second characteristic. It's the characteristic of persistence, staying power. And by the way, that separates the leaders from the dreamer. Here's a word that occurs frequently in the New Testament. It's key. The word is endurance. It's a military term, and it means to hold up courageously under fire. Jot down in your notes, if you are taking them, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, the writer says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, detailed for us in chapter 11, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance with endurance, the race set out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You see, Jesus is the perfect model of persistence, of endurance. Mark Twain said, writing is 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. I happen to believe the same ratio exists in terms of leadership. Leaders are tireless, dedicated workers 
who spend hours and years in the fulfillment of their dream. The choice of goals actually is secondary. Whatever the goal, they stick to it. But you see, you are plagued. I am plagued with a cultural millstone. Because in our society, we focus on speed, on quick fixes, on immediate solutions. And therefore, we glamorize leadership. There is no such thing as leadership without obstacles, without problems, without criticism. It's par for the course. And if God is calling you to a position of leadership, I guarantee you, you're going to have to take flag. And one of the weaknesses of our generation is that we like to be liked. And leaders are often not that popular. They are often the objects of a lot of scorn. And they've got to develop the second wind. Now you'll have to take this by faith, but I used to run track. This is back before the Earth's crust hardened. I used to run low hurdles. Obvious, I'm built so close to the ground. And there was a man by the name of Gil Dodds, who was then the world's indoor mile champion, a member of the Chicago club. He used to come out to Wheaton College and work out with us. And Gil and I built a very, very close, intimate relationship. I'll never forget the first time I met him. I was doing some warm-up exercises, jogging a little. Gil came by, slapped me on the bottom and said, come on, Howie, let's go around. So we talk off around the track, and I found myself, you know, four or five paces in front of him. And I thought to myself, you know, if you're going to be the world's indoor door mile champion, you ought to run a little faster. But what I didn't understand was that he was planning to go around again. And I really didn't have that in mind at all. In fact, I was running as fast as I could. And when I got around the track the first time, he hit me in the bottom and said, Come on, Howie, only three more to go. Three more to go. Man, I'm going to die right here. They're going to erect a monument. Hendricks died in this spot. Because I learned there's a vast difference between running short distance and running cross country. You see, Christianity is not a hundred-yard dash. If it were, most of us would be eminently successful. It's cross-country. It's a marathon. It's 26-plus miles. And you determine when you win the race, not merely by how you start, but by how you finish. This is why I am giving greater significance to people who have hung in there for a long period of time persistence is the hallmark of a leader. There's a third one, and that's self-knowledge. Leaders are very perceptive about what they can and cannot do. And I want to give you three things to jot down to think through. The first thing that leaders always know is they know their strengths. For example, if I gave you a three by five card right now and asked you to write down the three things you got going for you, how long would it take you to write them down? Well, I know the answer to that because I've tried it. I find most Christians particularly struggle with the answer to that question. I interview a number of candidates for various mission boards, and one of my favorite questions is to say, hey man, I understand 
You're going to go to Boga Boga Land. Yeah, that's, that's right, brother. Plan to go there. So, well, what would you say are your greatest assets? Why should this outfit send you there? Oh, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm very humble. Okay, humility. What else you got? Let's write that down. See, we are very uncomfortable with this type of thing. Paul says, what do you have that you have not received? Answer, nothing. So what room is there for pride? You're a great athlete. You're a great artist. You're a great student. You're a great musician. Whatever you are, that is a gift of God. And there is no room for pride. But your strengths develop your confidence. I've got to know what has God given me to develop a base of confidence in my life and in my ministry. The second thing I would ask you, what are your weaknesses? Oh, you say, that's no problem. I mean, give me a sheaf of paper, I'll fill them up for you. And by the way, the reason we know our weaknesses better than we know our strengths is that most of us have been doing the devil's work. See, the devil is the accuser of the brethren, and by the way, he doesn't need your help. So God calls you to do something, and what do you say? Well, you know, I, that's pretty difficult. I don't know if I can do that. And the devil says, that's right. That's what I told you. If you'd listen to me, you wouldn't have gotten into this rhubarb in the first place. So, yeah, that's right, devil. Yeah, man. You know, you and me, man, all the way. <laughs> See, most of us spend more of our time believing the devil than we do believe in God. Your strengths develop your confidence. Your weaknesses develop your faith. These are the areas in which I've got to trust God. But there's a third thing you need to know. What are your limitations? Every man, every woman in this auditorium has severe limitations. Do you know what they are? Do you know what you cannot do and should never try? I enjoyed immensely the spring sing last night. I couldn't believe the incredible giftedness in this outfit. And I sat down in the back just rolling on the floor. Joy in the thing. But you see, I could be sitting down there sucking my thumbs there. Why didn't God give me that? You see, it's your limitations that develop your dependence you understand you are dependent on the body of Christ. You can't do it all. And you need the entire body to accomplish the objective that God has given to us as a church. Romans chapter 12. This is the passage you ought to study. Paul makes an interesting statement. He said in verse 3, to every man, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. That's one problem. An exaggerated opinion of yourself. But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment, honestly, realistically. That's the other side. And then he says in verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. 
If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. In other words, Paul is saying you need to understand what God has given you and do it. Do it to the glory of God. There's a fourth one, and that is the characteristic of teachability. Leaders are perpetual learners. They never stop learning. And again, in the book of the Philippians, chapter 4, he spells out the curriculum for you. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. In other words, maintain an attitude of teachability. You see, leaders take charge of their own personal development. If necessary, they educate themselves. And that's a problem in our culture. And I hope you are solving it here at Masters College. See, I teach in a graduate institution. I have all college and university graduates in my class. And they come and I will say to them, hey, take Acts 1-8, come up with a list of observations. First question, how many do you want, Professor Hendrick? I don't know. How many do you want? <laughs> oh, you're the teacher. They say, you're the student. I'm not paying for this course. You are. But you see, already I understand he's been brainwashed. And we got to change the rules of the game. He went to a university, to a college someplace. What's the name of the game? Case the joint. Find out how do you get out of here unscathed. Never stopping to think. You know, am I here for my sake or for their sake? I'm here to get an education. And so learners, leaders, take classes. They listen to tapes. They attend seminars. They become predatory individuals. And by the way, this has nothing to do with your age. It has everything to do with your attitude. I've had students at the seminary, 25, 26, 27 years of age, dead in the head and everywhere else. And I got friends in the Dallas community who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, one of them 93 years of age, fully alive in Jesus Christ. In fact, I just lost one recently. 86 years of age, Mrs. Simpson by name. Last time I saw her on the planet, we were attending a Christian Christmas party. You ever been to one of those? Avoid them like the plague. <laughs> Everybody's sitting around on a crate of eggs trying to appear pious. She walked into the room, spotted me, and said, Well, Hendrix, I haven't seen you for a long time. What are the five best books you've read recently? You know, which has a way of changing the dynamics of the group. She said, oh, let's not sit here and bore each other with each other. Let's get into a discussion. If we can't find anything to discuss, let's get into an argument. <laughs> Last time she went to the Holy Land, she was 84 years of age and went there with a group of NFL football players. <laughs> My most vivid memory of her is at the top of a tell yelling, come on, men, get with it. 
She died in her daughter's home in Dallas. She called me and said, Howie, mother went home to be with the Savior last night. I said, well, let me come over. I went over, and when I got there, she said, you know, the most wonderful thing happened. I said, tell me about it. Well, she said, mother died in her sleep last night. But she said, before she died, she sat down at her desk and wrote out her goal for the next 10 years. I love that. See, that's the way to go out. And one of the problems is many students coming out of colleges and universities are educated beyond their intelligence. Take you a while to think that one through. <laughs> well, that's too convicting. Let's go on to five. <laughs> Leaders are people who love their work. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8 says it so graphically. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. You see, that's what impresses their followers, their enthusiasm, their zest, their excitement for living. You ever ask yourself the question, what do you like to do so well that you would do it without pay? What are you going to do the rest of your life that will guarantee you want to get out of bed in the morning? I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but the majority of the people, all of the studies show, a recent one from Harvard Business School, the majority of people in business and professions in America today hate their work. And they spend all of their life in a job or a profession that they couldn't care less about. You see, one of the things and one of the reasons why leaders put 10, 12, 16 hours a day and do it with full enjoyment is they are doing something that to them is fun. The most amazing thing to them is that somebody will pay them to do it. I never cease to be amazed. They pay me to teach in the seminary. Not very much, but... <laughs> I said to the president some time ago, you know, I, I feel convicted about taking this paycheck. I'm enjoying this so much. Well, he said, we could change the arrangement. Very creative sort of guy. By the way, this is what separates the leaders from the workaholics. You see, leaders operate on the basis of pleasure. Workaholics operate on the basis of pressure. To a leader, his work is enjoyment. To a workaholic, his work is an escape. And usually he is escaping from some very significant responsibility. There's a sixth characteristic. Leaders have an ability to attract and energize people. Again, the Apostle Paul provides such a realistic model. As you're reading through his epistles in the New Testament, note how many people he is attached to. For instance, in Colossians chapter 4, beginning about verse 7, you get nine people. Here he is at the end of this little letter, and he includes nine snapshots of people 
who have made an impact in his life or in whose life he had made an impact. Leaders are attractive. They're infectious. They're like a magnet. They're like a Pied Piper. People want to follow them. The universal characteristic of a leader is that a leader has followers. And when someone says to me, you know, Hendricks, I'm a leader. I say, great, where are your followers? You don't have followers. My friend, you are not a leader. You're just taking a walk. <laughs> during my eight years as chaplain of the Cowboys, it was during the Staubach era, Roger and I have developed one of the closest relationships of friendship that grew out of those great years. And as you may recall, he still holds the NFL record for having pulled out more games in the last two minutes than any other quarterback. And that fascinated me. And so I used to spend a lot of time talking to the players, the linemen, the wide receivers, and so forth. And I'd say, what happens when Staubach comes into the huddle? And I can still see that sort of glaze go over their face. One lineman said, I, I don't know, Doc. All I know is when he comes into that huddle and calls a play, there's a guy in that team isn't convinced that's the play and we're going to win. Ask yourself the simple question. How do people respond to you? See, are they attracted to you or repelled by you? Leadership is the ability to infect individuals with your vision. A leader is a person who has a compass in his head and a magnet in his heart. Here's the seventh characteristic, and that's the characteristic of emotional maturity. By the way, emotional maturity manifests itself best in interpersonal relationships. I want to give you a new perspective on living in the dorm. I happen to believe the dormitory of a college or a university is potentially the greatest learning laboratory in all of the world. The people who are failing in business, in professions, and I'll guarantee you in the ministry, and I will guarantee you on the mission field, are people who cannot get along with other people. I was over in Africa some time ago. Missionary leader said, would you do us a favor? I said, if I can. They said, would you talk to one of our senior missionaries? She's been here for 26 years. Had an incredible ministry in many ways. But the National Church is asking to have her sent home. Well, I said, what's the problem? Her problem is she can't get along with another missionary. And she's got deep feelings of bitterness. I said, well, let me talk to her. So I talked to her. Men and women, I kid you not. The moment I asked her what her relationship to this other missionary was, her jaw set, her eyes got like fire, her voice totally changed, and she spewed out a line to me of something that had happened 26 
years ago, and it was as if it just happened before she walked into the room. And I said to her, uh, you understand that this is a great hindrance to your ministry? She said, I don't care. I said, will you forgive her? She said, I will never forgive that woman. And she's wandering around the United States someplace because the National Church sent her home. They could afford to get along without her. Oh, men and women, you have no idea what's going on inside of me right now. The people, the steady stream of them coming home from the mission field, going out of the ministry, leaving jobs, bailing out of profession. They can't get along with people. I want to give you a verse of scripture to jot down. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Read it at your leisure, but this is what it says. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. you believe that? We'll say something. Yeah. That's the hardest thing to teach a young person. You are in the process of falling apart at the seams. You know, I looked in the mirror the other day. I said, what's, what's a young man like you doing in an old bod like this? <laughs> and I'm in a Bible memory ver program with my wife. And I said, okay, sweetheart, give me the 40th Psalm. We're in the process of memorizing the Psalm. She gives me the Psalm. I said, that's wonderful, sweetheart. Making tremendous progress, but you forgot verse 7. Oh, Howie, verse 7. I always forget verse 7. She said, now you give it to me. So I give it to her. She said, Howie, you're making incredible progress. But you forgot verses 4 to 19. <laughs> See, I don't understand all I know. By the time your face clears up, your mind goes fuzzy. <laughs> so if you can't take this any other way, you take it by faith. He says, you're wasting away. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that has outweighed them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is, is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know what he's teaching you? He's teaching you that when you look at a person, don't fix on the external. You better start looking at a deeper level. In fact, if we had time for testimonies today, we would hear the most incredible stories of guys and gals in here who are on drugs, guys so grossed out, they thought they'd never make it, and somebody came along, put an arm around you, took an interest in your life, believed in you at the critical point, and that's the only reason you're here today. And that's the only reason I'm here. It was predicted in my school that five of us would go to the penitentiary. And for your information, three of us did. One died in Penn State just about two years ago. And the only two of us who never went to penitentiary were one to Christ 
by the same Sunday school teacher who somehow saw me not as the brat from 7th Street. And by the way, that's what the people in the church I attended thought. See, I go back, you know, they're very gracious. They even invite me to preach. Would you believe that? And after I get through, they say, oh, Howard, we're so proud of you. <laughs> You've been down that road. And I haven't said this, you understand, I'm a very gracious person, but I've often felt like saying to a woman, lady, you didn't help at all. <laughs> the people in that church who ever saw me as anything other than the brat from 7th Street. But there were a few who flowed into my life and loved me more than my parents did. Who loved me for Christ's sake. Your ability to see beyond the temporal to the eternal ultimately develops your emotional maturity. Well, there's an eighth one. And that is leaders are risk takers. And I want you to jot down the parable of the pounds or talents. You know it. It's in Matthew 25, beginning of verse 14, if you want the reference. Leaders take chances. They take chances with people, with ideas, with money. Because they see it as something other than temporal. You remember, there was a guy who got five pounds. He came back, he multiplied them. Another guy had two. Lord said, great, fantastic job. The only one that Jesus scored was the guy who took his one talent and hid it. And the Lord said, you wicked and lazy servant. At least you could have put it in a bank to get interest. Oh, no, man, I shattered her. I'm going to put it in a bank. Bank's liable to go up. They're liable to rob it. Men and women, there is no such thing as faith without risk-taking. And I'll guarantee you there is no such thing as leadership without being willing to take risks. Non-leaders are cautious. They accent safety. They always focus on what they can lose rather than what they can gain. They are not the people who make things happen. They are the people who watch things happen or who don't know what's happening. But if you are safe and predictable, I guarantee you, you will never inspire those around you. My greatest fear for some of you who have shared with me during this brief time that I've been here, you've shared with me some of your dreams, you've shared with me some of your visions, shared with me and asked me to pray about some of the things that God is leading you to do, and I am scared spitless that some of you are going to get around older Christians who are going to pour ice water on your dream, on your vision, on what you want to trust God to do. That's why you have better become a persistent individual who can hang tough when the opposition comes, even from the wrong sort. A ninth characteristic, they have no fear of failure. No fear of failure. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. How? Through Christ, which strengtheneth me. 
Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not. Peter failed, but his faith did not. And he said, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. See, leaders are not afraid of failure. In fact, most of them don't even believe there is such a thing. And they certainly don't use the word. The secret is they always see failure as an opportunity for learning. And failure is not lethal unless, unless you fail to learn from the mistake. In fact, I happen to believe some of us learn more from failure than anything else. I'll give you a little illustration that all of you can identify. You take a lot of tests here at college. You ever go into a sociology class, a history class, whatever? Professor gives you a number of tests, I mean a number of questions on the test. You fill them out. You go away, you think, well, did pretty well on that. You get it back. In fact, you discovered you did better than you thought. But you forgot two questions. You got two out of 100. 98, highest grade in the class. The interesting thing is, and studies have been done on this, years later, when you could not work your way out of a wet paper bag answering those questions, you still remember the answers to the two questions you missed. See, what happens is you say, well, what did I miss? Well, what's it supposed to be? <laughs> but I, I have seen students who rack up the finest set of A's you have ever seen. And five years after graduation, if their life depended on it, they couldn't ask, answer the same question. Because you see, there's no learning. A lot of courses lead to a degree that never lead to an education. The problem is not in the course. The problem is in our perspective in terms of the education. And the tenth and last characteristic of transformative leaders, they are ultimately followers. In fact, they are the best. They become so good at following that they are usually propelled into positions of leadership. You want to see who are the leaders on this campus in the freshman class? Keep your eye on the people who serve. Watch the guy. Watch the gal. You know, a committee comes up, a responsibility comes up, boy, they're right in there. Sure, I'll do that. I'll take it. In fact, 20 years from now, that's the characteristic of their life, except now they are leading some outstanding Christian organization and you are delighted to remember that you were a classmate of them. I look at some of the men and women who were graduated with me from Wheaton College years ago and what God has done in the life of those people. Talking to one of the students about my little brother who was Jim Elliott. And when I think of the impact of that young man for Jesus Christ, he being dead continues to speak. And as a freshman, my little brother, I a senior, Jim was the type of guy, anything you ask him to do that he was capable of doing, you could guarantee it.
And if he told you he was going to do it, man, you could write it down as done. I told you about my father, who probably did more to prepare me for the ministry than any other human being. He was a military man. He took me up to Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania, where they were having maneuvers. My father was commanding a regiment at the time. And I remember we were in the tent one day, and a captain came in, and uh, my father gave him an order. Captain saluted, and then began to remonstrate with my father. My father, who was much shorter than I am, pulled himself to his full height, saluted him, and said, Sir, I did not ask you for an opinion. I gave you a command. And, of course, the captain came to a full stance, saluted him, and took off. So I was a teenager at the time, and you know how you are. I figured it's now my responsibility to straighten my father out. So after this scene, I began to say, Dad, you know, I think you were a little hard on this guy, at which point he proceeded to whip around and turn on me. And I will never forget his words. He turned to me and he said, Son, you will never become a great leader until you learn how to become a great follower. See, it's not an accident that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus Christ. I can still remember the first time I read that. I said, Lord, you've got to be kidding. I'd never say that. My friend, whether you say it or not, that's exactly what's happening. See, a lot of you guys are working with young people. You've got incredible ministries with children. Some of you have shared with me working with some handicapped people and people in a variety of difficult situations in the inner city. You're a model to them, and they watch you like a hawk. And my friend, they are going to imitate a whole lot of what you say and a whole lot of what you do. Long after they may forget what you have said, they will never forget the kind of person you were. What I would like to do is to give you an assignment. I know you're going on spring break, but I've learned academically that if you let it all hang out in spring break, when you come back, you're going to strip your gears getting back in shape. So I'll give you a preventive. What you need to do during the spring break and some time for thinking, just go off someplace, get by yourself. Take out this little card that you've written this thing on. Take these 10 things and evaluate yourself from zero to 10. Zero being absolutely not present. 10 millennial. And find out where are you. Because the key is not simply where are you, but in what direction are you moving and I've got the greatest news for you God never calls us to attack without providing all of the resources never says these are the qualifications without informing you this is the dynamic so don't stare up the steps step up the stairs and ask God to do something in your life that will make a permanent difference so that on graduation day, 
you will know better than anybody else. You haven't arrived, but you are en route. And by the grace of God, you've taken some very significant giant steps.